0: You are all weirdos. (laughs) Weird science is the revolution. Weird science is the revolution. Weird science is the revolution. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Weird Science Marvel Comics podcast. This is part of the Weird Science family of comic book podcasts. That's a family, not a network. You're all part of the fam now. You're all fam, and you're also weirdos, and... You're also part of the Get Fresh Crew. Uh, uh. And we're going to jump into a bunch of books this week with the more streamlined way that I ended up doing last week. That's going to be what we're doing going forward. But before we do get to those books, please go over to Twitter at WS Marvel Comics. Follow us. We'll follow you back. That's a follow back policy. Also, go to our website, weirdsciencemarvelcomics.com, where you can see and read reviews from this week and every week of Marvel Comics, then go to our YouTube channel by looking up Weird Science Comics, or going to the show notes and finding clickable links. All of these will have links in the show notes as well, but there I end up doing some video reviews of the things we're talking about, and then finally go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash weird science, where you can help us out for everything we do here on the regular feed, the three main shows that we do here, but If that's not enough, you get more, more, more over there at the Patreon. We do a ton of shows, Marvel, DC, manga, indie, you name it. We got it. It's a family, not a network. That's what I said earlier. All right, here we go. Ready to rock. We have a bunch of bigger books this week. We can have some fun with them, which I hope that you realize that a lot of times when I do end up, you know, making little jokes about things, it's because I care. It's because deep down there is a heart. Maybe the size of a pea, but it's still there. Maybe, after reading these books, it'll grow 10 sizes bigger just for the holiday season. Because, yes, I am the Grinch. Don't really know exactly the real quote from it. I tried to gather it up in my head. It wasn't working. But pea to maybe a about the size of a grapefruit, maybe, it's one of those things. I, I really think that when I end up dying, I'll be there and they'll say, you know what? Jim is dead, but he died with a big heart. And that's because it'll probably be enlarged because of all the nonsense medical things I have that go wrong with me. It's not going to be the idea that I was caring or anything. They will really be giving everybody a full out medical diagnosis of why I died. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. But we're going to get into these books right about now. The big event in all the land, Dark Web, Dark Web number one. And I'm telling you right now, to be quite honest, I forgot all about this. It came out. I said, holy crap, it's out. Here we go. That is my mood going into this. I'm not dissing it at all. I just really wasn't hyped. I wasn't hating it or hyping it, whatnot. It's kind of right in the middle, and here we go. And I hope that by the end of not just this first issue, but by the end of this event, I'll look back at it as something positive. I'm hoping that it does my man Ben Riley right. Doesn't do him dirty, and ends up where he's at a better place by the end. But that's kind of one of the only things that I'm really concerned with here. But here are the credits. Dark Web number ones written by Zeb Wells, art by Adam Kubert, Colors by Frank Martin, letters by BC's Joe Caramagna. With this event deal starting off, it seems that Zeb Wells is going to get people caught up on some things. And really what I think he's trying to do is catch people up on the motivations of the characters and give a bit of a roll call of the characters involved. You start out with a nightmare of Ben Riley, who you see what he's all about. He's upset that he doesn't have all of his memories and he feels as if Peter Parker is keeping them from him, but also laughing at him about it. He seems to think that everybody thinks he's trash and that pretty much he feels like he's Danny DeVito in the twins movie. Peter is Arnold Schwarzenegger, and poor Ben ends up being Danny DeVito. So you continue on throughout this book. It feels very, very, it doesn't feel forced, but it feels like an academic type deal of, okay, next we have to show this group of people and kind of show their connections and what they're up to, which we do go off to a weird party. It is the, <laughs> it's so weird, even look at the Harry Osborne birthday party, but dead clone party. Where they end up having at a coffee shop. But even this is to show people who may not be reading Amazing Spider-Man that, ooh, Mary Jane has a new family. Now, going at, you're gonna get the same non-information that readers, unfortunately, are getting at Amazing Spider-Man. What do you mean, Mary Jane? You have a new family? What's that all about? Well, I'd like to tell you, but I'm not. And we also see that, you know, some people, including Mary Jane, are a little pissed off at Peter, that sort of thing. But you also then, because when Peter looks out the window, There is the old down-and-out, kick-the-can, sad Charlie Brown Norman Osborn walking by the party, and so Peter runs out to talk to him, again, getting that status quo of Peter and Norman kind of being friends a bit, and Peter describing, or at least trying to console Norman, who is sad. It is his son's birthday, and his son, the last bit of the son he had, was a clone that died. Peter starts to try to explain what that should mean. And it's weird because in the Spider-Man books, obviously, we've had a ton of clone stuff. It gets convoluted. It's all that. But Peter says, I look at the clones as not actually themselves. Like if there's a clone of Harry, it's not really Harry. It's its own thing. But the feelings that it has are real. And that clone really loved you, Norman. So you should be happy because a clone of your son loved you. Now, in that, you could read between the lines and get that idea of if he's thinking that. Does he really think that of Ben Riley as well? Oh, you're not really who you're supposed to be. But I think it also is that little twist and that little layer that if Ben would go to Peter and say, "Listen, you don't, you know, respect me because I'm not you," I think Peter would just say, "No, no, no. You're you. You're Ben. That's why I. That's why I like you. You're Ben." And from the beyond stuff, which Zeb Wells was involved with and was the big Ben Riley bit to this, there is a bit of a disconnect, especially because they kind of teamed up a bit there. And I really liked that. That's why I went by the end of this for Ben to get back to a place where they can continue to do that and team up and have some fun. Uh, but here we are. We're here in the story. So we have to go with this. Well, the, the talk does cheer Norman up a little, I guess. And he goes off to his office. And at that point, you do end up, again, having this roll call feel of all these scenes. You go back down to Limbo with Ben and Madeline Pryor. They're down in Limbo. You even get a little bit of the X-Men in this and the idea that magic ended up allowing this. Jean Gray's like, I'm still mad at you about that. But we do go back to Limbo for a little roll call there. And we see that Janine is back to being Hollow's Eve. There's a mention that she wants to do the mischief and the mayhem, and Madeline says there'll be plenty of that. But by the way, I also have a bit of a wild card. And that is da behind door number three, we have King and Black, Eddie Brock. And so you end up seeing, you're like, holy crap, like what happened? And it, it makes sense. If you're gonna get Eddie, the only thing that is going to allow that is if you know information about Dylan. And Dylan's missing, and Madeline has pretty much, you know, bargained with him. Hey, I'll tell you about this, but you have to be on our side. In the meantime, though, you can't really have a king in black Eddie Brock doing this. So you have this, and it did feel a little forced, but you end up having this reverted Eddie that thinks it's more of the symbiote back in the day. And it's really classic Venom symbiote, tongue all out, all sexy, right? And With that, though, it felt a little silly with everything that has been going on for the past couple years with Venom. It kind of felt weird, but you get it. I think people will end up enjoying that. I I thought it fell a little flat with that, but we'll see how it develops. But again, roll call. You end up getting Hallow's Eve, Venom on hashtag team pissed off clones. So there's sides being drawn here and things like that. But they are kind of disjointed because, again, you have the X-Men. Walking through New York City, it's holiday times, they're looking at things, you get Peter and all of his deal, you end up getting this team, hashtag pissed off clones, all that, but you also have Norman, all that going on, so the next step is to cause some trouble to end up having everybody kind of jump into the fray, and that's what Madeline does. She ends up starting to play her organ in a non-sexy way, and that ends up, and there is this chant that she's doing that every time I see it, it, it makes my head spin, but it's Extus Tanimbrorum starts doing that, playing the organ, right? And all around New York City, inanimate objects start to grow teeth and mouths and horrific deals, and now we end up having them eating people, basically like a Komodo dragon. And if you know that reference, shout out to you, thumbs up. but. All this is going on, and that forces the X-Men to jump into the fray. Spider-Man's Spidey sense goes. He jumps in, which then we go back to Norman Osborn, who, after that talk with Peter, has gone to his office and ends up seeing the news. Oh, there's crazy stuff happening. This looks like a job for the Gold Goblin. And he does end up looking like, maybe I will do that. Maybe I will, because it worked out last time. I did it against Jack-o'-lantern. Everybody thought I was great. I signed some skulls for some kids. Maybe I can get involved. But he doesn't get that far because Ben Riley slash chasm has shown up. And I like this scene specifically with the idea that with Ben, we've been centering so much on the memories that he lost, the memories that were taken, that you don't really think about the memories that remain. And the one of them is or most of them seem to center around Norman. Norman's face keeps popping up in Ben's head. And he says, the bad memories I've left are all of you. You end up killing me, all that stuff that was, and I'm going to now take it to you and I'm going to beat the crap out of you, which he does. He starts just beating the crap out of Norman. Thankfully, like in between panels, off panel, whatnot, you end up where Norman does get into the Gold Goblin suitor. I think he'd be dead. So that's big because I do like this Norman. Norman actually says, listen, I'm trying to make amends and I'm sorry. I really am. And again, if this was another story, you might even have the, hey, you know what? I just lost. My son, who is a clone, maybe you could be my new surrogate son. Come on over here, sonny boy. But you don't have that. He beats the crap out of Norman. And then we get the big cliffhanger, which, again, it's Venom. And he's like, where's that Spider-Man? I'm going to eat his brains. It felt a little goofy. It really did. It felt silly to me. But that's the whole deal. Again, in this issue, there is a Zamboni with a big mouth and teeth trying to eat people. So uh, it's, it's kind of leaning on the silly as well. So overall, it was okay. This is an okay start. It really just kind of gets you the people who are in it and their motivations a bit to go forward. So overall, eh, I'm not as excited as I hoped that would be after one issue, but I'm looking forward and really laying a lot at the feet of issue two to get me going here. The art was good. And I want to see more of Madeline Pryor's plan overall deal. But I said, I care about what happens to Ben Riley, And the Venom moments were a little silly, but I think people like them. All that is how I feel. But overall, I'll give it a 7 out of 10. The latest issue of Dan Slott Spider-Man is part 3 of the end of the Spider-Verse story. It's Spider-Man number 3. And I'm not feeling so well, and I have lost my voice. I think I sound a bit like Demi Moore. And if you find that sexy, you're welcome. But here we go, and it's the end of the Spider-Verse, they say, right on the cover. I still don't believe it. I'm not going to buy that until I really see it, because what I think is going to happen is we're going to get one of those, the Spider-Verse is dead, long live the Spider-Verse endings. That will be more like a reset than a finale, but we'll have to wait and see. Maybe it's me saying this. Maybe it's the tons of NyQuil that I just took trying to get through this. I don't know. Column A, column B. But so far, I've been pretty positive about this Spider-Man run and this end of the Spider-Verse story. I think it's been fun. I've even liked enough of those tie-ins, and pretty much I like this enough. And I know that that's not going to get me on the back of any trades. They're not going to have on the back of the trade, I liked it enough, Jim Werner, Weird Science Comics. But the only thing I can do let be myself. Jimmy being Jimmy. I'm not going to make up stuff and say I uh, fake the funk. I like it enough. And hopefully that changes here in a good way and I start liking it more, which might get on the back of the trade. Here are the credits for this story. Again, Spider-Man number three, end of the Spider-Verse part three. Written by Dan Slott. Pencils by Mark Bagley. Inks by John Dell. Colors by Edgar Delgado. And letters by VCs. Joe and the issue opens up with everyone reacting to Miles Morales being infected by Shathra. I thought it was kind of a clever twist here. You end up finding out that Shathra can't really switch and change 616 characters. So you have your group of 616 characters. But lo and behold, Miles Morales, Ultimate Spider-Man, say, yeah, he can be infected. But I like what Dan Slott does here. You get a combo. You get the idea that Miles is strong, strong like bull, and he can fight off Shathra's effect, but it's also because he has a little bit of the 616 in him as well. So he's able to fight it off, but he is still a liability. He's still pretty much a beacon that you have that Shathra can follow to get to the Spider's Sanctuary. She's been listening in, using Miles, all this stuff. So Morloon steps up and pretty much says, let's slice his throat. He is a liability. He is going to sell us out here, whether he likes it or not. Slice that throat. And uh, some of them agree. I mean, I'm telling you right there, Hunter, Spider, Craven, he wants to do it. He's all about it. But Miles comes out with a better solution. He says, whoa, whoa, whoa. How about I just go right to Loom World and take the fight? Right to Shatra. I might even call it a hunt. The minute that hunt is said, you end up getting Hunter Spider, Craven, get what? Did you say hunt? Did you? I'm in. He flip flops that quick when he hears this trigger word hunt. Hopefully while they're in Loom World, they don't run into a guy named Mike because then that gets sus. That that would be real sus, right? So they're going to go off and that actually is the start. Kind of what this issue is about. You end up having Miles and Hunter Spider. They go off to Loom World. And we're going to now separate the teams and go off and do little errands. The funny play of that, though, is they're there at that point for to get the plan from Madam Webb. She has this plan that she wants to go. You need everybody there. And they just start drifting away. They just start walking away. It's like when I'm talking to my kids and I have five kids, it's like a whole Spider verse right there. I'm like, hey. Guess what I did? Yes, I'm like, where'd they go? I don't even get those words out. They're gone. I I hear cars squealing and they don't even drive. That's how bad it is. They're out. So yeah, they start going. And the first to go is Peter who says, ah, call me the chosen one. He loves to go with this. He loves that deal. And I hope that he just keeps it after this. Just, hey, call me the chosen one, everyone. But he heads off with Night Spider and Aranya for little Raiders of the Lost Ark action What they're doing is trying to get this golden spinner This artifact that's in the 616 of Central America It's in like a ziggurat And they need to get it because it can reweave the Great Web So they can, you know, pretty much fix some of this damage That Shathra has caused Start to reconnect some of the Great Web Now, you get a portal open And this is the thing, portals have been opened You end up having Spider-UK open them. So you end up Peter, Night Spider, and Aranya, they go through this portal. While the portal's open, pretty much Morloon yells, peace out, suckas. And he says, I'm getting that totem dagger from Spider-Man Noir. Boom, he goes through the portal, just jumps through. So everybody's like, oh my God, Morloon's going to go and kill Spider-Man Noir. Now, that might not seem that bad. He ended up taking out Jessica Drew, but... He is being controlled, and I think they're going along the lines of eventually we'll solve what's going on here. We'll get our friends back so you can't go and kill any of them like Morloon seems to want to do. So Silk, Sunspider, Webweaver, and Spinstress, they all jump into the portal to chase Morloon down. So everybody is off. The only two left are Madam Web and Spider UK that are kind of just there to do play-by-play later. They don't have much to do. They ended up meeting here to have this big plan that was going to be, you know, revealed. Hey, we're going to do all this. It's uh, all for one and one for all. But nobody's left, so we kind of just have to hang here. Now, the stuff with Peter, Aranya, and Night Spider, I think, is the best. But even that goes on a little bit too long. Maybe if by the end they didn't get the Golden Spinner snatched away from them. It might have been a little bit better. You would have said, okay, that paid off, but it doesn't because they end up getting it taken, which is, I'll tell you, very Raiders-esque. It had that Raiders vibe, though I did want Aranya to yell, that should be in a museum, as it happens. Doesn't really get the chance to do that. As far as Morlun goes, and then Silk and the rest, they come up empty-handed. You end up Morlun goes, there's a big fight, you end up Spider-Man Noir, he doesn't have the dagger. Now, that's the twist that ends up giving you a crazy cliffhanger in a little bit. But before we get there, you do end up having spinstress go down. She ends up getting bitten by a wasp, and she's now hashtag Team Shatra. Poor one out for the spinstress. Now, I like spinstress. I've had people tell me that they can't stand this Disney singing character. Now, originally spinstress in her first one-shot deal you ended up having a broadway lyricist do the songs i thought they played out really well i thought that it really felt like a classic disney deal and i said when me and jason were talking about it that i really could see this being some sort even if it was just a short but a kind of a cartoon that i think that a lot of people might dig now spinstress doing songs with dan slot at the helm and and forgive me if somehow we find out that dan slot ended up going and getting that same person to do the lyric because the lyrics seem like a lot of nonsense now and i'm only guessing that it is dan slot and dan slot he's no paul mccartney you know what i'm saying he's not even a jesse mccartney oh my god take that jesse mccartney i know right now his ears are burning Probably because he's like lighting matches and putting them in. I I don't know what the guy does. He's probably bored right now. But that all leads to a crazy cliffhanger. And I'm talking crazy to the point where it might be a little too crazy. It might be a little too big. It's one of those things that, yes, we're going to try to suspend our disbelief. But I don't know if you can. But if you can, you probably let out a big gasp and maybe crap your pants. I mean, it's that big. But it's that big. And it makes it silly but hey if you can suspend your disbelief mwah, go for it this was just a setup issue though with a lot of teams separating so that bad things can happen to a bunch of these characters because it has to be that darkest before the dawn sort of story at this point it really looks like as a numbers game would go you know Team Shatra is way, way above. If you're doing odds in Vegas, they got some really good odds to win this Spider Super Bowl here. It's going to take a lot to get the good guys on top here. But that's what makes the hero thing work. I've had enough of these darkest before the dawn and have your heroes beaten down, beaten down, beaten down. But that's kind of the play of it. It looks, though, like Dan is setting up this team though by the end and when you look at it at the end i wasn't even thinking but at the end i'm like huh so that's what you're doing because first off you have more and silk together the, that's a trigger for silk especially it was brought up in this issue and peter peter tried to make silk feel better by basically saying listen i know that you were trapped and imprisoned in this underground bunker but you know more you weren't able to attack him, so you were really in the prison. He wasn't, no, it didn't work. I'm like, Peter, no, she she lived hell. Uh, nothing you can say, I mean, how you're saying it don't make sense. So with that, though, you also have a lot of the newer spiders. You have a lot of these new characters, and I really think that this is going to be one of those where these new spider characters will rise up and save the day. I mean, I'm not saying this in a bad way, We'll have to see how it goes But I am saying it as a new Typical way, especially at Marvel I know some people would be Triggered by that Now, I won't be triggered by it If you do one thing You gotta develop these new characters These new characters are surface level Generic characters at this point Dan Slott has done nothing Nothing at all to advance anything Of these characters of what we got In those little one shots with each of them You have done nothing, Dan Start doing it if these are the heroes you better start doing some groundwork you better start doing some heavy heavy character work that makes me love these characters and want them to succeed in this way instead of you doing nothing and forcing it down people's throats that's not the way to do it that's when people clap back so that's a little hot take you can tell that that's the serious me really going and, and trying to you know get to the people and really talk the truths of the truth right but Mark Bagley's art nah. Continues to be great, but the story—it really does feel like this issue, especially, is more flash than substance. Uh, it, and it does need to pick up. It needs to pick up next month. Get going. This is supposed to be huge. This wasn't a letdown, but it was like a weird little like eh, that was mid. Not much happened. Let's see. I hate when you're in the middle of an event like this and there's an issue where it just—it's like blasé. You know, it's one thing if you try something. And you fail. At least you tried, right? Oh, my God. He tried to do that, but oh, it didn't go so. Okay, but kudos for trying. This sort of issue is almost like, well, we're not going to do much. We're going to end up maybe showing that there's some hope, but then ripping it right from them immediately and then end with a cliffhanger that's so ridiculously over the top that some people will laugh at it. So I I thought it was a little down because of that. I am going to give this a 7 out of 10. Uh, But I'm still into it I really am I, I actually am enjoying this I haven't dealt with a ton of the Spider-Verse stuff Like some people have Brandon, my man Brandon When we ended up starting the podcast And it's funny because I bring up Brandon a lot But it's always to say that Brandon was sick of something Or had enough of something else But at that point he even had said I'm kind of done with the Spider-Verse stuff And here we go, we keep getting it So It's just going to keep going, but this is the end of it. So maybe so, I doubt it. But seven out of ten for me, and we'll move on to the next book, Daredevil number six, written by Chip Zdarsky. So here we go, and I do want to apologize for my voice. I mentioned it during my Spider Man three review, but in that I said, "Yeah, I sound like a little sexy Demi Moore, right?" But in between that review and this one, I actually did get treated for. A slight case of the carbon monoxide poisoning. So anything I have said recently, I just want to blame on that. If I've offended you, it wasn't me. It was the carbon monoxide in my blood. That was what was offending you. So I am scot-free and away we go. And when I talk about loving Chip Zdarsky's Daredevil run, I mean the first volume with Mac going to jail, Electra taking over, and everything in between. The second part we're dealing with right now, it, it should feel big, but it's not hitting with me overall. And I don't know what it is. There's a lot of standing around talking. There's a lot of philosophizing. But it also might be that the Jason Aaron Punisher book just really isn't hitting with me. I'm not enjoying that at all. And maybe that whole bunch of things all combined in the goulash that is comics nowadays is kind of just turned me off a bit. but. I love Chip Zdarsky, and I know and hope that this can all change quickly, at least in the Daredevil book, and it can change as quickly as this issue. We'll see as we get into it, but here are the credits. Daredevil number six is written by Chip Zdarsky, art by Raphael de la Tour, colors by Matthew Wilson, and letters by V.C.'s Clayton Kells. I had to go all the way down. I don't know why they diss Clayton Kells like that. All the way down there. Here is what is the recap. It is the Red Fist Saga Part 6, but here's the recap. And I sometimes read the recap, sometimes I don't. I will in this because a lot of crazy things have happened. Daredevil's married. Oh, my God. I didn't send a gift. I didn't even know there was like a registry. Oh, my goodness. I better get on that. Daredevil's married, and centuries ago, a group named the Fist was formed to stand in opposition to the sadistic and violent ninja clan, the Hand. Now, after a grueling ritual against the souls of the Hand's victims, Matt and Electra have emerged as the Fists, King and Queen. That sounds sexy. And their first act as monarchs of the Fist, sounds sexy again, breaking into the Myrmidian prison to recruit an army of villains, killers and assassins to their cause. But Matt and Electra's union comes at a precarious time, as the Hand also has a new leader. The bloodthirsty and ruthless vigilante, Frank Castle, aka the Punisher, and it's funny you have in that book, aka the Punisher, but you also have akka uh, Kind of AKA, isn't that neat? The way that all things work out. Well, I end up jumping into this issue, and it starts with a roll call of the villains that Matt freed from the Meridian prison. I'm telling you, I, that that word always gets me. One of the perks though of being a new recruit to the Fist is the free therapy from Doc Sampson. They have a heck of a healthcare plan, including being there and sitting on the couch and, and talking about your problems to Doc Sasquatch. I mean, what other business can say that? It's pretty cool. But Agony, you see her little symbiote action, she doesn't think that that's so cool and actually starts fighting with Leonard, which allows Matt to kind of saunter in Oh, you know, he's really like quietly just comes in. He has his hands behind his back, real surreal. And he gets to give his new age speech, right? I thought that possibly I was watching an old commercial about Dianetics. He ends up going and really plays off the goodwill hunting. It's not your fault. Don't say that, man. It's not your fault. No, no, no. I know it isn't. No, no, Agony. It's not your fault. Uh, agony though is no matt damon here and is kind of still pissed off and i'm not going to say that the beginning of this was action-packed but compared to what's to come at least with matt it might as well have been the born identity second shout out to matt damon right there who is a gem we do though get electra at the paris g8 summit I don't know if she's there to maybe meet up with Greta. How dare you? She's not, but that's why Greta seems pissed right there. She's actually there to check out and see if the world leaders have been replaced by the hand. But back on the island, Matt boils water. He cuts vegetables. I think he might be cooking like spaghetti, starting to make a sauce. But he also discusses the ills of incarceration with the bad guy Bullet. So Bullet's there listening to this mumbo-jumbo again, and it's something that keeps on coming up in this book, but it has the depth of a tweet that has hashtag I hate hate. That's what it comes off to me, and I don't ever use this word, and that's a lie because I'm going to use it now. It feels like signaling. It really does, and especially the amount of time that we keep going back to it but it's just surface level nonsense it's nothing that is going to solve a problem it's nothing that really gets in depth with the problem and i think that chips Zdarsky might be playing that angle a little bit but it really just ends up making matt feel like he's just a, a big dummy who just wants people to like him but that's kind of what happens but what makes it worse is bullet she's right through the bs maybe that makes it better and calls matt on it which then sends matt into this rage And he throws everything. That I mean, they're sitting there cooking a nice fresh meal. He throws it against the wall. "Ah," And I'm like, guess we're having leftover meatloaf tonight there, people. I don't know. But it might have even been the idea because I still do think he was making spaghetti. I think he threw it. It's like, I'm going to throw the spaghetti on the wall. See what sticks. Oh, crap. Nothing stuck. What are we going to do? You know what you're going to do? You're going to eat meatloaf tonight, people. So with all of that, we go back to Paris. And Elektra does prove, but it's kind of just to herself, the way the circumstance goes, that the hand are up in everyone's business. But now she's kind of world enemy number one, and she almost killed Iron Man as well. And while well, I think those two things should probably even out, she kills a president, she almost kills Iron Man, you know, that evens out. Uh, no, it doesn't. People in the world now and, you know, everybody in charge, they're going to think that Electra is pretty much going crazy and has to be taken down. This is going to make Matt look good as well. And it really puts the fist in a precarious situation, which, again, this was all set up. This was set up by the hand. So that's kind of cool. You see the machinations going. I did like when this president ends up saying to Electra, yeah, yeah, you know, I am part of the hand, and we're all over. You ever hear of that Hydra thing? Well, we're kind of like that now since they're not around. But by the way, I'm going to jump off this balcony, just like in Lethal Weapon 1, and he ends up and he falls down on the car. But unlike the hooker in Lethal Weapon 1, you end up where she goes down and gets to talk to the president for a little before he dies. But he talks a lot of trash and laughs at her. I thought that was kind of funny. But the issue then ends with Matt and Stick walking and talking. Got a lot of that in this run so far. Philosophizing. And it ends up with them going to Goldie. I, I don't like Goldie. I don't like the addition of him here. I thought that the kind of ambiguous stuff with him before just was okay at first, but then it didn't really intrigue me. But also going into this after all this walking and talking and philosophizing, and adding his religious BS to the mix. And then Frank Castle at the end stroking his blade. <laughs> that, that's not sexy code either. Well, of course, talking about punishing. It almost felt like too much at the end. I'm like, oh, my God, what are these people talking about? And why are they doing so much of it? Uh, But this is the kind of issue that has me kind of bored with Daredevil right now. I still love Chip Zdarsky. I still love Daredevil. It's still one of my favorite books on the shelves. But I'm also including the first part of the run. But uh, Chip Zdarsky has Electra, Matt, even Frank Castle here in the issue where 98% of the time they're walking, talking, and stroking their swords. The art's good. Still not as good as before with Concetto, but it's good. But I'm just not interested in the story right now to even give the cliched, I can't wait until next week. And believe me, that's always a great way to end a review if you're a hack. But hey, some people might say it, but I'll tell you, blame the carbon monoxide on that. But I can wait until next issue. I hope Sadarsky gets back to the A-plus storytelling. I know he's capable of, but because of all that, I'm going to give this a 6.5 out of 10. All right, let's finish things up with one last book, Fantastic Four number two. And the first issue of Ryan North's Fantastic Four run was odd. You're going to hear me use the word odd a lot, even in this review. But we saw Ben and Alicia in a Twilight Zone feeling story that wasn't horrible, but was hardly what I expected for a new number one of the Fantastic Four. Now, some people did remind me that John Byrne did the same type of thing in his classic Fantastic Four run, and I had to remind them that Ryan North is not John Byrne. Not even close, but he really doesn't have to be, and maybe this second issue will get things rolling. And here are the credits for Fantastic Four number two, an issue that is called The Night of Doom. It is written by Ryan North, art by Ivan Coelho, colors by Jesus Servatov, letters by V.C.'s Joe Karamanya. And I'm going to read the recap, not because it's that important, but because, again, it's odd. It feels like something that should have come before the first issue. In fact, it doesn't even feel like it's in the past tense, the way it is spelled out, and really just sets up the last issue. Here it is. The Thing and His Wife, Alicia, have hit the road Separated from their children and estranged from their former teammates in the Fantastic Four. All that remains of the FF's former headquarters in New York City is a massive pit, and the whereabouts of the other members of the team remains a mystery. That just feels odd. It feels like it should have been before the first issue. And I actually went back and looked thinking it might have been and they made a snafu here, but they didn't have a recap in the first issue, which is it makes sense. It's a first issue. What are you recapping? But that really feels like it should have been there. Now I'm going to start out this review with the good, the bad, and the ugly of The Fantastic Four number 2. The good is we do get some Reed and Sue Richards in a Fantastic Four book. That's a bonus. The bad is it is just Reed and Sue Richards in a Fantastic Four book, but also it's another Twilight Zone-feeling story, very reminiscent of the first issue. And we don't find anything else more about that massive pit that Reed caused in New York City. The Ugly is seeing a dead old lady inside a Doombot. And that is disgusting, but in a twist, in a sweet way. And I did like this issue a little bit more than the first one. Sure, it still feels better suited for an annual or anthology. And it did feel like Ryan North stretched a 12-page story to 20-plus pages. But it did feature Doombots, so it felt more Fantastic Four than the previous issue. And it also had some heart and had a bit of feels to be had in it. Now, the story just throws Reed and Sue into a small town. I couldn't tell you where it was. But the town goes from Quaint to Doombotville almost immediately when Reed introduces himself to a waitress. As Reed Richards, all of a sudden it's revealed she's a doombot and apparently the rest of the townspeople are doombots as well. It's a weird play because while the situation escalates, it just suddenly stops. And then the police escort Reed and Sue to the city limits and say, you just keep going. Get out of here. Don't come back. Everything will be fine. Now, of course, Reed and Sue, they double back to investigate. There's going to be a lot of red flags going. When you're in a town inhabited by doombots. So they go back and they do investigate. And I'm not gonna say the detective work was top notch here. A lot of it was just read, jumping to conclusions. They happen to be right, but there's something to it where I think that Ryan North, being an all ages writer, the pacing of this actually was pretty good that you could play a bit along with some of the mystery. And when you do, He gives people enough time to even figure things out slightly before Reed, which actually makes you feel pretty smart. If you figure out things before Reed Richards, oh my God. But it was the pacing, not just making Reed feel dumb or anything. It was just nicely paced. And I really did like that part of it. The story itself involves an old lady who was nice to Victor Von Doom a long time ago. And he promised her he would. Be good for that. He would make it up to her. He would end up rewarding her for being nice. And it seems like this old lady ended up, you know, laughing it off. Oh my God, that's just Victor talking. And oh my God. And doesn't seem like, you know, she has a way to say, yes, he did end up honoring this promise. But if you know anything about Dr. Doom, you know that he does honor his word. And we do find out that he did make good with this old lady and the promise. But in a very Dr. Doom kind of way. And while it ends up feeling a little creepy and overbearing, it still was pretty sweet in a way of Doom being Doom, right? And the whole idea of this was he wanted to protect this old lady. So he ended up using these Doom bots to kind of inhabit the town. But over the years, because this is a quite an old lady, over the years... You end up having doombots making doombots assuming roles. I mean these doombots really went full out in their roles in this town, including pretty much committing doombot suicide because people have to die in a town. so it really plays out that this is the one lady in the town of all doombots that are around playing it's It's a lot like a Truman show type of scenario, but it was in a sweet way that. Dr. Doom just didn't want anything bad to happen to an old lady that actually was kind to him. One of the things that's really neat, too, is Reed and Sue are very intrigued that these seem to be the only Doom bots whose first deal, the first rule of, is not to kill the Fantastic Four. It's The second, but the prime directive is just to you know, make sure that this lady is safe and has a nice life. And that's kind of a a neat play in a twisty sort of Twilight Zone-esque way. Now, it gets real Twilight Zone-esque when you end up finding out even more. I'm not going to spoil it. I kind of did before, but there's a big reveal that makes it even a little more sad but even creepier than before. Now, the best thing, though, i think about the story overall is that while sue is gushing to herself and the whole thing is kind of framed in that sue is writing a letter to she-hulk jennifer and she's talking about how great and humane reed is but the thing is you also realize while she's saying that about reed you can think the same thing about victor for what he ended up doing and i love when writers end up showing how similar Reed and Victor really are, even though they don't always know that themselves. And it was done in a neat little subtle way. So I give Ryan North full props for that. But in the end, we're no closer to finding out the big mystery of what Reed did in New York City. And that's what I want to get to. And this is what a lot of the books right now at Marvel are doing. I talked about this during my review for issue number one, but we have the same thing. What did Peter Parker do? you know, before what is Mary Jane and this whole family? What about the Hulk and Bruce Banner? What did he do? We're getting this in a bunch of books. And I don't know why Marvel thinks that this is something that's cool. It it, it drives me nuts, but eventually we'll get to that. The problem is we still have Johnny storm. We still have Johnny and it says next issue, Johnny storm. And I'm sure he's going to be in some small town. Probably fixing a car or something, because that's what he usually does. But there you go. The other thing that I thought was a little down in this issue was there wasn't a ton for Sue to do. Yeah, she's writing letters. She's gushing about Reed, and she's serving as the narrator for a lot of this. But overall, she's not doing much. At one point, she really just stands invisible outside of a house for what seems like half a day. But I still just overall don't understand why Ryan North and those in charge decided to start the run this way. But hey, we have Johnny next. And once we get done with that, then maybe we could start the run proper. But it's also improving. I like this issue more than the first. And if it keeps going at that rate, we could end up with a pretty decent run. Will it end up being as classic as the John Byrne Fantastic Four run? I'm going to go out on a limb and say probably not. But it doesn't have to be. It's its own thing. And I really just hope that it keeps getting better and better, right? So with that, though, I did want to have a little aside, if you would allow me that. Back in the day, around the time when Avengers number 18 by Jason Aaron came out, me and Brandon got in a fight with Tom Brevoort, who happens to be the editor on this book. And he ended up then pulling the old John Byrne Fantastic Four Run card on us. And we were talking about how Jason Aaron's Avengers run was a bit unfocused. It needed to have more stories with the core Avengers team. And it really wasn't hitting a lot with a lot of readers. And he came riding in on his white horse with the shining armor to throw the John Byrne Fantastic Four Run card. Hey, that's what people said about John Byrne's Fantastic Four Run. And I just sat there and I think I said, that, that doesn't mean anything. You're, you're talking about the idea that a book's being criticized. There's a lot of books that get criticized, and most of them don't end up being John Burns' Fantastic Four Run. And he went on and on like a jerk. I think that the guy really comes off as a horse's ass and a pretentious prick who has a hard-on for John Burns' Fantastic Four Run. So go off in the bathroom, run the water, and have all your fun with it. Get out of here, Tom Brevart. I just wanted to vent a little at the end. So there you go. But back to the review. A little aside, Ivan Coelho's art was decent. Nothing really stood out to me. I did think that Jesus Erbatov's colors were a bit drab, which actually surprised me because I usually like his work. But at no point does the art get in the way of the storytelling. And So overall, I'm going to give this issue a 7 out of 10. And I hope that issue 3 continues the trend of being better than the last because I do want to enjoy this. I do want to have a Fantastic Four book that I want to read each and every month. I ended up, when we started this podcast, The Fantastic Four, we didn't even have a Fantastic Four book then, but I wanted The Fantastic Four to be something that I could get into each and every month. As it came out, Dan Slott eventually gets on his run, and I ended up bailing like three times on it. At points, I was interested. Then I ended up, you know, a slog for three issues. Then it was back, then the slog. It was, again, uneven and a bit unfocused. So here. Is where I am, and I want to get more fantastic for it and really love it. And that is it for the show. I hope everybody continues to enjoy this new format. I got mostly positive reviews on it. My man Ruben, who's on the Weird Dose of X, said that he liked it because it's more of a quick way to get through some of the current books, especially ones that maybe not are hitting as well or not that great. So I hope that everybody does enjoy it. I'm going to continue to add more and more books to catch up with things i'm not totally caught up but we're very very close i'm hoping that the episodes start coming out sunday night when they're supposed to but i end up having a lot of crazy things going on including carbon monoxide poisoning let's blame it all on that as i said before and you can tell my voice is coming back a little. It's coming back. I'm ready. Me, me, me. I'm ready to start singing some songs and dancing in the rain. So with all that, though, go over to the Twitters at WS Marvel Comics. Follow us. We'll follow you back. Go to our website, WeirdScienceMarvelComics.com for reviews each and every week, mostly by my man, Gabe. And then go to our Patreon, Patreon.com slash WeirdScience, where you can help us out for everything we do here on this feed, but get plenty of Extra Podcasts, Marvel, DC, Manga, Indie, all that stuff, all rolled up in the one that I like to call a family, not a network. But also, please go and check out our YouTube channel. I've been putting a lot more reviews, again, DC and Marvel mostly. But yeah, go and you can get the link in the show notes, but just look up Weird Science Comics and you'll certainly find us right there. So thanks, everybody. I hope you enjoyed everything and I'll talk to you all. Later. Cody Comics. You are all weirdos. Weird Science is the revolution. Weird Science is the revolution. Weird Science is the revolution.